Welcome, everyone, to our latest episode of The Graw Pod. Doug Graw here today, hosting again along with my business partner, Gary Randall. Excited for another good conversation on the employee pipeline. We've had some good prior discussions about the college recruiting pipeline as well as the experience pipeline. But I think if I'm going to rank them, probably the most exciting part, the most important part is what are we doing with our existing team and how are we developing our existing team? Right, Gary? I would agree with that, Doug. Most companies have a lot of talent on hand and they've got to mine that talent to meet the needs that they have as an organization. The needs they have today, as well as anticipating the needs they have in the future. That's what we need companies to be thinking more and more about that. And I think our guest today can really shed some light on those things. We're very excited to welcome Maggie Debner. Maggie, you're from HRMD Consulting. You've got a very impressive background at some of the largest companies in the world, as well as startups and everything in between. Maggie, first of all, thank you for joining us. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dig into today's topic? Thank you, Doug. I started my career in HR at Roadway Trucking. For those of you that aren't as familiar with Roadway Trucking right now, it's Yellow Roadway Freight. A lot of the themes of my career come from exactly that, is competitors becoming colleagues. So I left Roadway, stayed in the transportation industry at Northwest Airlines. Northwest Airlines has a history and a legacy of acquisitions and integrations. Republic, Central, and then Northwest Airlines ultimately went to Delta. So left there and went to Thomson Reuters with a history of acquiring West Group and Thomson and then Reuters. I went from there to Cargill, and Cargill has a long history of acquisitions with merging other companies. And from there, went to a smaller company, Taylor Wharton in cryogenics. Worked on with that organization on divesting a portion of the business because it was not strategic. After that, I left for Ideas. A former colleague came to me and asked me to join the firm that he was with at Ideas. And they were looking for strategic HR to build their HR bench strength and competence. After that, I felt like I was ready to start my own business with experience both in large and small companies. And I started HRMD about three years ago. That's fantastic, Maggie. And you've seen a lot is what all that means. And bigger doesn't always mean better. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't always. But I'm going to guess that you've seen some organizations that you'd say they have their act together. They know how to develop people and so on. And you've seen some companies you go in there and you're like, uh, they've got some weaknesses here. There's work to do. When you first go into an organization in talking about the people development side, we'll set aside the compliance side of HR world for a different discussion. But when we're talking about people development, what are some of the things that you're looking for as you you make an initial assessment of this company's strong, this company's got some weaknesses? When I look at organizations, I identify what's their pipeline look like. And especially in the war for talent that we've got going on right now, Doug, we have individuals that are looking for work and you can't go into a business that you don't see a help wanted sign. Looking at what are the critical roles that companies have. So when I look at a merger and acquisition, part of the due diligence I look at is what's the bench strength for that organization? So if they have a critical role or a unique skill, what does that bench strength look like? Because we're not buying the company, we're buying the talent in most cases. So I want to make sure that they have a solid bench strength. As a part of that, do they have a succession plan? Or for those key roles, do they have a way to fill those gaps? The gaps particularly that are going to hurt the business and causing delays for delivery or gaps in ability to skill a certain function. In terms of other areas that they're looking at in terms of deficits is really do they have a development program? Are they aware of the development that they have? Do they have identified gaps in that development plan? And are they working to bridge that? 
Are they looking at today's strength as well as what they need for the future of the organization? And do they have a plan to address that? Maggie, what do you think you see most commonly in the companies that you go into? Do you feel like people do a good job of investing in their bench strength? Or do you feel like it's a, we'll deal with that when the time comes approach? Yeah, the hard part about this past 16 months is that people are trying to just get by today. Unfortunately, a lot of the development initiatives have gone by the wayside. So people are struggling to just go remote and figure out what that looks like. And they're not trying to understand what that means for them going forward. As people return to work, they're looking at, okay, we were able to do this remote thing for the last 16 months. We're going to keep doing it. Well, anyone can do something in a crisis. It's the sustainability of that moving forward. And the managers that were successful in that remote environment were just doing remote. Now they have people that are remote, people that are in the office, and then a hybrid of the two. Really looking at those managers' skills and competencies around how are they managing the nuances of the new work world? Are they capitalizing and leveraging it? So are they really in an environment where they're able to be strong communicators? They're solid coaches for those individuals that are struggling with functionally, technically, or as employees with their colleagues. So how are they working at being that mentor coach to the team members that they're developing? And how are they managing performance? The biggest travesty is managers that aren't managing poor performers because they have a warm body. That can be the most serious and the most difficult thing as it relates to losing talent. Highly talented individuals aren't going to work for a manager that's not managing poor performers because guess what? They end up taking all the work. What do they say that culture's based is really a makeup of what you tolerate? And Absolutely. if you tolerate mid-level performers or poor performers, the good performers aren't going to stick around that much longer. No, and A players don't want to work for B managers. People work for people, not companies. So a lot of times people say, well, we've got a great company culture. It's like, it's only as strong as a manager is. So make sure that you have a solid manager base in order to deliver that value proposition to the employees. One of the things that I think a lot of companies have seen or experienced during this work from home time is that people start to look around a little bit. I would think that would probably create management and supervising opportunities at some of the organizations that you're working with. The first temptation of a company often is to take their best performer and promote that best performer into that manager or supervisor role. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. At the Grog Group, we tend to use a whole bunch of sports analogies which may be a good thing or maybe a bad thing. But the sports analogy for this, of course, would be that sometimes the best players aren't the best managers or coaches. So what do you do when you're working with companies now that because there's been some attrition, people have gone on to other companies, there are openings, there's need for management and leadership. What do you do to temper that first thought of theirs, which is my best performer is my next manager? I think that there are certain functions that are typically vulnerable to this. You look at finance, HR, technology, or sales is a great example. A good salesperson could make a horrible manager. Using sports analogy, you can have a superstar salesperson that could be a champion sales individual, but as a manager, they struggle because it's a team sport. Managing is a team sport. So that individual, that person that excels in the individual environment may not be the best manager. The other piece is people think there's something magical when you promote an individual contributor to a manager role. Now, I made them a manager. They should be successful. Well, if you're an office manager, you wouldn't put them behind the wheel of a truck without a CDL license. 
why would you put a manager into a role responsible for 10, 20, 100 employees when they haven't been trained to do that job? Making sure that you have a path for development for that individual contributor to be successful in the manager role. So looking at what are the unique skills of this role that they don't have and what are the transferable skills in their previous role that they can bring to this role and be successful. There's a great book by a local author, actually, Michael Watkins. It's called The First 90 Days. It really is a guide to help you be successful in transitioning from one role to the other, whether it's individual contributor to manager or going from one company to another. It's just a strong guide to give you a solid foundation around what do I need to be successful in this new role? It's a very thoughtful, structured approach to that transition. I've read that book. It's a fantastic book, and I'd recommend it for anyone that is either entering a transition themselves or if you are a leader and you are promoting someone or bringing someone in in a key role and maybe encouraging that person to read it as well. So that is a great read. You talked about setting this person. You're promoting them into a manager role, and what are you doing to develop them to help them be successful? Trucking is definitely known for and prides itself on we're lean and mean, we're thin margins and all that kind of stuff. We can do a little bit of hand wringing when something comes across that seems a little fluffy or a little bit like extra. Everybody on this discussion, we know that's not fluff. That's investing in your business. That's what it is. But what would you say to some people who are maybe scared at, holy cow, what is this big training and development that I've got to do for this person I'm promoting and a manager? I feel like maybe it can actually be a lot of little things that you do to help them be successful. What can you share with our audience to maybe say it's not as scary as you think? Absolutely, Doug. I don't believe in huge programs around development. I believe in a basic principle. The first step is who's the talent and what's the development path? A manager knowing their employee, knowing what their career aspirations are and what their areas of strength are is the first step. So knowing your audience is integral for a manager to be successful. If you have an employee that's interested in that manager path, being aware of that and then helping develop the employee for that path is important. What I look at is a 70-20-10 model for development. 70% is experiential. You don't need a big program for it. Adults learn from experience. And making those experiential opportunities part of their development plan or path is important for their development. Job enrichment, expanding their skills and abilities in a special project, looking at what are their stretch assignments to give them a little bit more opportunity to expand their horizons. Continuous process improvement, having them develop, enhance the project that they were responsible for from the beginning are all important parts of that 70% experiential. The 20% is exposure, looking at who do they need to be exposed to or what do they need to be exposed to to be a stronger contributor in the team. So it's looking at new methods, colleagues' experiences, other locations, mentors, leaders, professional development organizations, or just professional organizations within their field of discipline, getting a membership. So it's really that exposure piece. The third is the 10%, which is what people typically go to for development, is traditional learning experiences classroom degree. I'm a fan of education, but it's not a one-stop shop and using it as a piece of the development, not the whole. It can be a virtual coursework or it can be an in-class learning environment, but it's probably the minority of the learning experiences. Also another inexpensive way to look at it is for a manager to host a book club. You get both experience because you have people reading books that the manager or the leader believes have a strong message like you just mentioned, Doug. If you have people that have read the book and they're excited about it, have them lead a book club. Talk to the employees about what their takeaways were 
then they get exposure to that leader. The leader gets exposed to those individuals as well as their thinking around those key topics of leadership traits and attributes. Finally, on the development, I believe it's the employee's responsibility for development. So this takes off a lot of ownership or responsibility from the manager. It doesn't eliminate it entirely, but the employee is responsible for their development. They know what their career trajectory is. They know what their interests are, and they know the path that they're on. So they're the ones that are best able to say, here's what I want, and here's what I'm willing to do to get it. The other piece is the manager is a facilitator, not the owner of the development. If the employee says, I need experience with X, manager can help promote that and work with the finance team so that they get exposure to financial statements or work with the customer service area on building customer acumen. But the employee ultimately is responsible for making it happen. Maggie, when you talk about the exposure piece, 20% of it is exposure. The first thought that came to mind was early on in the conversation, Doug mentioned that sometimes as an industry, we say to ourselves, well, we want to develop our people, but there's a cost to that. So we kind of shy away from that cost. Other times, I believe that companies in our industry kind of shy away from the exposure. They know they've got a good employee. They know they've got an up-and-comer in the industry. Rather than letting that person go out and join the associations, attend a convention, participate in the state association, they kind of wrap their arms around that person and say, well, we really don't want you doing that. We want you here focused on the opportunity at hand. What do you say to an owner of a company if you see them taking that approach? Sure. It's interesting. One of the larger companies I worked for had an apprehension around LinkedIn. So we don't want our employees on LinkedIn because then they'll be poached. It's like, are you kidding me? You have a great value proposition here. Your employees need to be on LinkedIn because they're creating conduit for new hires to come through that channel. I always say, have confidence in your value proposition as an owner, as a leader, that employees aren't going to leave for that next shiny thing. Be the shiny thing they stay for. Promote and develop them because they'll leave if they're not being developed. I think there's much more risk for employees to leave if they're not being developed. I work with companies that use a traditional nine box for talent management. On the x-axis, it's performance, and on the y-axis, it's potential. So that upper right quadrant is where the high potential high performers are. And they say, well, we don't want our high potentials, high performers having exposure to other companies, other experiences, because they'll leave. And we don't want to tell them that they're a high potential. Guess what? If you don't tell them they're a high potential, you don't have to use those words. But if you don't tell them that you value them, that you appreciate their contributions, hey, Doug, you just blew it out of the water yesterday. And that was fabulous. If you don't do that, they'll leave for the competition who well value them who well reward them for performance and who well pat them on the back and say, way to go. Those are inexpensive things to reward for is the thank you, that you did a great job. That's what employees want to hear. I've dealt with companies that send out millions of dollars in bonuses. And I would tell you that the money lasts as long as it takes to spend. And in today's economy, it doesn't take long to spend a lot of money. A thank you, really valuing and really developing employees goes a lot further and a lot longer for retention. You hear the story of what happens if we invest our employees and they leave. And the other flip side of that is we don't invest our employees and they stay. You're going to become stagnant. Absolutely. And Doug, what you say is if you invest in employees and they stay, make sure you reward them with the new skills that they've developed. Because a lot of times people say, well, we developed that so we don't have to pay for it in compensation. 
well, guess what? Your competition will pay for it. So you better keep up with the new skills that they have. And they said, well, we feel like we're paying twice. Yes, you are, but you're not paying three times and losing them and have to hire someone else in their place. You talk about the money component because money's important. Let's not belittle it. The money's got to be there. But most employees are not chasing the absolute maximum revenue that they can make in their career. They're looking for being paid their value, but also being valued as a person. We talk with clients and employees at clients who talk about, I really like that I get to be a part of our equipment financing discussions. I get to be a part of our discussions about whether or not we're going to grow in this market or in that market. And they love the fact that the CEO, the owner, the VP of whatever bounces those ideas around with them. That gets their blood flowing a little bit and gets them excited. And I think that's a great free way to show your employee you care about them and you care about their thoughts. Oh, sure. Rewarding work, engaging work is the top way to recruit and retain people. The second is a manager that I can learn from. People want to learn and grow from their managers. So having strong managers in roles and having them operate in a coaching and a mentoring capacity is huge around acquiring and retaining employees. Well, and maybe you can talk about the successful managers that you've seen with that old adage, the best manager realizes that he or she should never be the smartest person in the room. So how does that manager who is open-minded enough to surround themselves with people that are maybe smarter or maybe more talented than they are, how does that manager go about acting as a mentor to that employee that they're trying to develop and that the organization wants to develop? Yeah. Leader coach and situational leader is being what they need when they need it. If you have a new hire, new college grad, they know little about the organization and about their function. They're on a vertical trajectory on both. So they might need a stronger manager and more direct contact with that manager as they're onboarding and as they're getting up to speed. But the experienced employee that's sitting next to that new college grad, new hire, they don't need as much high touch, but they're going into a project that they don't have any exposure to. So they're going to need situationally a little more time to get started. And then they need access to that manager for bouncing ideas off. Hey, I'm thinking about this. Do you think that this is going to be successful? They use that manager more as a sounding board and more as a development coach. Was this the right path to take? And just to be thinking out loud. And then those senior team members that you hire, they can run circles around you in scheduling or in coding or in financial management, but they need help in some of the other areas of the company. They need exposure to resources. They need information on the company strategy that they wouldn't otherwise have. So it's about getting them the information that they need to be most successful. I think a great manager is one that promotes and develops a lot of their team. I think that's a great sign of success for a manager too, is look at what their coaching tree is. That's right in Gary's wheelhouse. Gary, you can talk a little bit about the coaching tree mentality. I'm a big believer in that, as Doug just mentioned. And I think that the best manager, the best leader has a coaching tree that extends far out into the organization and probably far out into the industry that they work in. People should take more value out of the fact that they've developed other leaders than that they've developed followers of themselves. As that happens, it's a good thing for the company because the company gets experienced leaders that are coming probably from other departments. It's a good thing for the individual leader himself or herself because it really is the joy and the value that they get out of work should be seeing other people be successful. 
So what it does is it helps you as a leader make sure that your expectations are being met. And it also helps you in terms of what your legacy to the industry is. As you see people get promoted and move on to other jobs within the organization or to other organizations, that really cements your legacy in the company that you're working with and in the industry that you're working in. So maybe you can talk to us about, have you seen examples of that, of good coaching trees? What kind of a difference can that make at organizations when you see that develop? It's magic when you see it develop and when you see the kind of potential, the kind of momentum that it picks up is huge. So what I look at is the manager that's good about, and it's great when it's within the discipline, it's exceptional when it's outside that manager's discipline. So when they're looking at connecting the dots and disparate dots at that, this finance employee is going to be a great operations executive because of X. They're going to the likes of your colleagues, Gary, and saying, I need to get this individual a stint in the operations part of the business. Even though that employee is incredibly valuable in the role that they're in in finance, they still want to loan them out to operations so that employee gets the exposure and the experience that they need because the manager is a team player and knows that we don't have a pipeline in operations like I do in finance. So I'm good with that. This employee has interest in going to operations. It is exponentially great for the organization because you build that business acumen across disciplines and other people see it. So they know that their career path isn't strictly in that silo, but it's horizontal and vertical. That just expands their horizons and people see that and think this is the company I want to stay with because we don't promote just in a vertical capacity. We don't hire just from the outside. We have a combination of hiring from the outside, hiring from the inside and promoting from within that's important to me as an individual. People want to work for that company and more important, they want to refer their family and friends to that company, which brings in the concept of recruitment, which I think is everybody's job. Oh yeah, in a good company, you're exactly right. We do know also, even if you are really good at developing talent internally and you've got a good coaching tree, sometimes you do end up in a position where you have an opening that's a little bit unexpected and maybe someone wasn't quite as far along coming up behind them to easily fit right into the seat. So you're sitting there as a leader, you're talking with your HR professional, you're saying to yourself, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to promote from within? Are we going to evaluate outside? When you don't have a clear cut answer to that, what are some of the things that you might look for in that internal person to say, I might be able to make a leap on this person? What are some of the characteristics, the performance attributes, some of the skills you may have wanted to see some signals that this is a person that might be able to swim if we throw them into the pool? Just so you don't throw them in the deep end with ankle weight. <laughs> <laughs> but jokes aside, what do you need to make sure you're doing to support them? Yeah, goes back to what we talked about is internal versus external. Where is this individual at in their development plan? Have they actively worked to be ready for this position? Is it just a matter of time that we just didn't have the six more months that we needed to develop this individual? And I'm willing to take a six-month gap. But if they have been sitting with an air of entitlement, I'll run screaming from the room because I don't want anything to do with that. So it really is what was the individual doing to promote themselves before the role? It's a great employee that's been actively doing the role, whether they're paid to do it or not. So are they hungry? Have they been working to develop their career? And is it just a matter of that three or six month gap? The other piece is what does the role need? Looking at the critical competencies for the role and what can that individual transfer from their experience to this role and be effective in that transition? 
then when you look at the external pieces, how successful can an external player be in this role? And there are roles, Gary, you know this and live and breathe it every day. There are some roles that you just need to have inside expertise. That's sometimes more valuable than the functional expertise that you might bring. What are those roles and what are the gaps and how do we go about filling them? But I think it's not just having a recruiting strategy that's all internal, all external will fail miserably. It's a combination of it that creates that magic and creates that momentum that an organization needs. So it really is about not over-promoting that high performer, low potential, because that's a critical flaw. If you have a high performer, low potential, that might be a good solid citizen, keep them in their role and don't over-promote them because that's not a reward for anybody. But if you have a high potential, high performer, and it's just a matter of time or a couple skill gap, you can find a mentor. Maybe they need business acumen or customer acumen. Partner them with someone in sales so that they can build that customer acumen on an accelerated basis. Maggie, how do you help customers weigh the importance of tribal knowledge? I think oftentimes that gets used in a negative context. That's not how I mean it in this case. So I've got an opening. There's certain tribal knowledge that would be helpful, but maybe that company across the street is doing something really well that you're struggling with and you'd like to be able to take advantage of that knowledge. How does the scale get tipped if you really got an option there of promoting from within and knowing full well that that person understands your culture, understands how you do things versus hiring from the outside, getting some new fresh ideas that could maybe change some things up? I think of the healthcare industry a lot because they hire from within, I think, and to their detriment. You think about what we talked about earlier is making sure you're hiring for the future and not today. That's where it's critical. I mean, electronic logs. Who had experience in that five years ago, three years ago, two years ago? Well, we're getting experience fast now. Remote work. Who had experience two years ago on that? But we're getting good at it. So it's really about what do you need for the future and making sure you don't put yourself in a detrimental position as it relates to your competition because they're looking ahead as well. And so just making sure that your business strategy is well known throughout the organization so that the managers are in a position to make a decision as it relates to what's going to happen in the future so that I'm positioning my team to be responsive to that, whether it be technology, whether it be functional, whether it be capacity or operationally, what do I need to have the best team? That advice makes a lot of sense. And as I think about our conversation today, I think our message works well with a couple of different people within an organization. It works well with owners and executive leaders. It works well with HR leaders. And it also works well with direct managers. I think something we run into from time to time is this notion that people development, that hiring, firing, all that kind of stuff, that's HR. My job as a manager is to manage to our metrics every day. That doesn't always sit well with me. I think of HR, legal, IT accounting. We are support services for the business. We are here to give you the tools to succeed and help you hold your hand along the way. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that concept and where you think when we're talking about people development, what would you say is that's fair to expect of your HR team versus this is what you should expect of your managers. I mentioned it a little bit earlier is that I think the program development, when you have a gap, you need a program development, HR is in a good position to be able to do that, but not in isolation. 
I'd say any project that I do in isolation of the management team is going to fail miserably. So HR's role is to work with the managers and leaders in a business to understand what are the landmines that I need to stay away from and what are the catalysts that I need to leverage in order for this program to be successful. And then the managers have to support and promote it. And then the employees have to embrace it like that employee development. It's employee owned, but the manager has to facilitate and fuel it. Recruitment is a perfect example and one that a lot of leaders say, that's HR's job, that's talent acquisition role, that's a recruitment team. If you rely on a recruitment team to do all your recruiting, you'll fail miserably. Because you've got one, two, three people that are dedicated to it versus if you're an organization of, let's say, 300 people. Why wouldn't you have every employee working on a recruitment? So have HR help you with the employee referral bonus program, but then have every employee out looking for good talent. Because when you get employee referrals, They're usually more solid players and skills. They're already aligned to the organization because they have someone telling them about it and getting them on board with that. And they have a community because they already have an acquaintance in the organization. They're going to be more successful. I would just say that make sure that when you're building those programs that you set them to the needs of the organization. So if you're losing retention at three months, make sure to not hand out those bonuses until three months and six months. Look at your track record and where are you losing people and then align the bonus program to those specific organizational needs. Good, bad, or otherwise, trucking is very familiar with their bonuses right now and what all we're trying to do to get drivers. You're exactly right. You got to be careful about the rules around those bonuses. I'm sure there's a lot of trucking leaders listening to this going, man, I can't wait to not have to do bonuses anymore. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of industries are in the same boat. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. We've had a very good discussion here today, Maggie. Thank you very much for the time. Before we sign off, our audience, a lot of small and medium-sized trucking and logistics companies, I'd be curious if you had one or two takeaways that you hope that they take from this discussion when it comes to that internal pipeline, what would you hope that they take away? What I would say is in terms of what the key takeaways are, communication is critical. Make sure that your managers are in a position to have those conversations and the crucial conversations that they need to with a high degree of candor. Developing employees is key for a business imperative and retention tool. Paying for performance builds high-performing teams. And finally, recruiting is everyone's job. Those are great points, great takeaways. Thank you again very much, Maggie. It's been a wonderful time and we look forward to talking again down the road. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me to be here. Well, Gary, I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that discussion from Maggie. I thought she provided some really good advice for folks, some real practical takeaways. Gary, I'd be curious, what stuck out to you? Doug, I'd agree. I think Maggie was a great guest. And I think what stuck out for me was a common mistake that's made by organizations that she spoke to, which is take your best individual contributors and automatically assume that they're going to become good supervisors and good managers. Doesn't necessarily work out that way. She made some great points about the fact that it's okay that someone is a good individual contributor and you've got to find a way as a business owner to make sure that that they're happy with that. And or if they have aspirations of moving up to be a supervisor or manager, you've got to spend some time to develop them and make sure that they're going to be ready and put them in position to be successful as they make that transition. You're exactly right, Gary. And what stuck out to me was I really liked her comments about this doesn't have to be this big elaborate 
program. She talked about 70, 20, 10. 70% 70 of people development is just about getting them experience. 20% just about getting them exposed to other things. So if you've got somebody, bring them into the meeting. They may not be contributing to that meeting that day, but they're getting exposed to it and that's going to help them down the road. And then yes, maybe there is a 5 to 10% component that's about some formalized training. But don't think that you have to go out there and invest in getting people master's degrees and PhDs and doing all types of formal training. This experience and exposure is a big part of it. And folks, if anybody out there is looking to get a hold of Maggie, she's a fantastic asset. Again, it's Maggie Debner. You can find her at her website, myhrmd.com. I encourage anybody to reach out to her. She's a real good resource. This discussion wraps up what I think has been a pretty good series, talking to people about the office pipeline. Driver shortage rightfully gets a lot of attention. It should, it needs to. It's a critical issue to the industry. But I think a lot of trucking companies and logistics companies out there would agree that finding that office talent and securing it, retaining it, developing it is also important. And in this series, we've been able to hear from college recruiting experts to talk to us about getting that relationship established with a college. It doesn't have to be this big, robust thing. Just reach out, start with a career services office, start with a professor, see where it can go from there. We talked about experienced recruiting. Sometimes the right answer isn't inside. Sometimes the right answer is outside. We talked about the importance of making sure you're evaluating both for culture as well as fresh perspectives. You're going outside because you want some fresh blood, but don't forget the importance of that culture fit. And Doug, going forward, I think we're going to look next at the role of the CFO in an organization. Pretty excited about that. We think we've got a great guest lined up to help us with that. Also, as you're listening to us, make sure that you tell your friends or anyone that you think could benefit from this to check us out on their favorite podcast platform. We're currently available on all the mainstream platforms. While you're there or while your friends or colleagues are there, if you can give us some feedback, some of those platforms offer you an opportunity to provide input. We'd look forward to that and would appreciate that very much. And if you take the time to subscribe to us, you'll get a heads up when our next podcasts are coming out. So remember, it's the Gra Pod, and we're available on all the mainstream podcast platforms. That's a big day for us, Gary. I'm really excited about that, and I'm enjoying doing this with you. Thank you to the Podwheels Network for making this happen. And until next time, everybody, please be safe out there.